You're listening to Live Wild Radio, the part-time adventure podcast. Join us as we explore how outdoor adventures build mind, body, and spirit. Well, welcome to everybody to our first Zoom uh, recording. So if you're listening on the audio, on the podcast, uh, and it doesn't quite sound the same, hopefully it sounds good enough for you guys to listen to. Um, it's our first uh, attempt to do a, a remote COVID interview, you know, because it's the pandemic, right? And you're not supposed to hang out with people. So our first guest for this uh, is somebody I've actually known, like, who is it like about 15 years? Uh it, it's yeah a nothing close to 15 yeah <laughs> you know so uh today we've got paul Gaines. he's a freelance journalist uh born in the uk you know we'll get into his whole story but born in the uk went to school in the states lives in canada um and you know interviewed everybody from uh like usain bolt and lennox lewis uh to uh you know Basically, politicians, musicians. Wait. Gretzky. Yeah, uh, am ben I not Johnson. doing the intro? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm chipping in. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> so, Paul, welcome to the remote you know, interview, <laughs> the podcast. It's um, a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, yeah, and it was great how we connected. Um, I was in my OCD nature manner, as I usually am, picking up garbage on trails, and I run into you. Um, you made a comment and you were taking photos of wildlife and then we just started talking and talking and talking <laughs> and I realized, Hey, we, we need to have you on our podcast talking about your passion about photographing wildlife and the adventures you've been on traveling the world. So that's what intrigued me. And, um, so Whereas I, being that I've known Paul for a long time, it, to me, it seemed perfect. Cause like you're a storyteller. Yeah. So when you can sort of throw out to somebody. And then just sort of sit back and then they'll just tell stories. It's perfect. It is. <laughs> well, you've probably heard about uh, 45 or 50% of my stories. Uh, I, I forget yeah. most of them as I age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let, let's just do the, the bio, you know, sort of your history, and then we'll get some into some of the more recent adventures. So where were you born? I was born in Coventry, England, which is right in the Midlands, right in the center of England. And that's where the accent comes from. Yeah. What's left of it? Yeah, I've been here a long time. You know, I still support Coventry City Football Club, and uh, they won yesterday, so I'm <laughs> very happy about that. But uh, we emigrated to Canada when I was uh, 12 or 13 years old, and uh, things weren't so good in Britain, and my dad lost his job. And Coventry's famous for um, cars. A lot of the auto factories, Jaguar was there, and. Uh, famous for Lady Godiva as well. That's where she was from. But uh, when the factory started shutting down, everybody started looking for places to go. And we came to Canada, fortunately. And, um, you know, I, I became a Canadian citizen, um, ran track in high school in Toronto and ended up uh, earning a scholarship to the University of Oklahoma, first of all, and uh, studying architecture there for a couple of years. And then uh, I didn't get along too well with uh, the the culture in Oklahoma. So I transferred to Colorado State University, which was much more up my alley, and uh, switched majors to uh, uh, exercise physiology. Uh, I mean, complete, oh, nice. <laughs> completely different, but um, my whole life has been like that, just going from path to path to path, you know. 
but um, and, and then after um, after university, I came back to Canada and uh, lived in Toronto and worked at Variety Village for eight and a half years, where I was teaching physically disabled kids and adults and putting on coaching programs for them. And I started doing events to promote disabled sport. And uh, in fact, in 1982, I was the, I founded what was then the very first fully integrated track and field competition. I brought in people like Ben Johnson and Mark McCoy and uh, Angela Bailey and others to run in this track meet. They did it as a favor, but it was to attract TV and sponsors and, and the rest of it. So we had three events for able-bodied athletes and we had nine events for disabled athletes. So, the, the, you know, we had probably a thousand people in the stands and um, they got to see uh, these elite athletes compete plus elite wheelchair athletes like Rick Hansen and others who, who had flown into the competition. So, and then I ended up going into full time into uh, sports marketing and, and for four years worked for Landmark Sport Group in Toronto. We represented <clears throat> athlete clients like uh, Kelly Gruber, the Blue Jays and um, uh, let me think now, Kirk Muller of the Montreal Canadiens and Ian Miller, the equestrian. And so along with doing a few deals for the athletes, I was also um, uh, the event manager uh, of major events we did. Uh, the United Way cricket match at Sky Dome was a, an award-winning event. And we sold 40,000 plus tickets for Sky Dome for a cricket match, which was just blew everybody's minds away and a uh, very successful event. And, um, and then uh, decided at, at the ripe old age of, I can't remember what it was now, but I decided at one point that I didn't want to do that when I was 60 years old. So I decided to focus on my freelance journalism. And at the time I was writing for the Globe and Mail regularly and um, mainly sports. And then uh, I did a few pieces for the New York Times and I decided, well, I, I, can, I can do this for a living. And I quit my, uh, my sports marketing practice and went into journalism full time. And uh, the break there, I think, was writing for the National Post because unlike the Globe and Mail that kind of pigeonholed me into athletics and soccer, um, the National Post allowed me to write on science, uh, music, uh, anything that I was passionate about and travel and so on. So that, that opened up, you know, big doors uh, to, to other avenues. So, and, and uh, you know, I just followed it since. So it's been 26 years now as a full-time freelancer. So, but, okay. um, so 26 years. So that is, uh, yeah, mid nineties. Okay. That, that was my question. When did that happen? <laughs> I know that lots happened in uh, the whole news industry, but um, very cool. Yeah. And it's not a, not a big thing on adventure, but it's something that that's interesting to me is how have you managed the transition? Because like when you started magazines and newspapers were, uh, you know, paying pretty well, uh, you know, you could make a half decent living. Um, cause I, I used to do a reasonable amount of freelance writing and bicycle stuff and that kind of thing. Um, and then it just dried up. Uh, and how have you made the transition to sort of the internet world? Well, well you're right. It, it, things have changed a great deal. Um, in the good old days, I could come up, I, I would come up with an idea for a story and I would start off thinking, uh, this is good for Maclean's let's say, or time. And, and I would, if they said no, I would go to the New York Times. And then if they said no, I'd go to the, you know, I'd go down my list. I don't want to <laughs> disparage any other uh, periodicals. 
but I would, you know, in the glory days, you could, you could, uh, I would get 99% of my stories, my ideas sold, you know, commissioned. So, and, and occasionally, uh, if you had a, 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 I learned probably in early, the early 2000s, that if you were able to um, write on a variety of subjects and look for a variety of topics when you're traveling, you know, editors love it. You know, for instance, I, I remember um, when Ben Johnson, uh, I've known Ben for a long, long time, uh, he was cur uh, training Colonel Gaddafi's son, uh, the, the leader of Libya, um, and tr training him for soccer. And uh, I got a call one day from Ben's agent at the time, um, and this fellow said, uh, would you like to go and visit Ben in Tripoli? And I said, um, yeah, why not? That sounds great. And I, never thinking that it would happen. So the Libyan government, uh, I hope there's a statute of limitations here because I don't know if this is a, uh, a, a if I'm free to speak about it, but I ended up with a, uh, an airline ticket and uh, free accommodation paid for by the Libyan, um, the engineering department of the government, which Saadi Gaddafi was uh, in charge of. That was um, Gaddafi's son. So I ended up going over there. And, and while there, I did uh, a couple of soccer stories because the coach of the Libya soccer team was Carlos Bilardo, who would coach Diego Maradona at the club level and also coached him when they won the Argentina won the 1986 World Cup. So it, Carlos, I'd have breakfast with him almost every day with a translator. And, and I did a story on him for a couple of British papers and for the National Post. Did a story on Ben's coaching for the National Post. It was a front page story. Um, I visited a place called Leptis Magna, which is an ancient Roman city on, on the Mediterranean. And it was uh, founded by uh, the only Roman emperor born outside of Rome. And, and he was from that area. So he built this big city uh, that had been buried under silt and sand for centuries and only was ex excavated in the early 1900s. And uh, nobody would go to visit it. So the day I went, uh, I had a guide, uh, a taxi driver take me out there. And I'm walking through these streets. It's like ancient Rome with no tourists. And uh, I did a story for Equinox magazine for that uh, and, and for British Airways High Life magazine. So the point I'm making in the glory days, you could make one trip and, and I'd, do a, I'd do a business piece for somebody. I, in fact, I did a piece for Business Traveler on doing business in Tripoli. Uh, so I, I, I had probably 10 assignments. So I'd come back. Those trips you know, were, were a godsend because I'd make a lot of money. And you're right that things have changed so much now that, uh, um, but I've, I've branched now to, um, to uh, a little bit more of, of magazine writing. Uh, it's harder and harder to get a piece in the newspapers these days. They have no, no freelance budget. I did a, actually did a piece on, uh, speaking of Ben, uh, Ben Johnson in uh, the last piece I did for the Canadian paper was, it was a Toronto Star feature I did on, on Johnson. Uh, a year ago or two years ago. I, I've, I've done regular uh, features for, uh, travel features for British newspapers. Uh, they still have a little bit of money and uh, a little bit more interest. And they still, some of the editors there still know me. Um, whereas <laughs> that's the other issue. As you age, uh, newer people come in and the older crowd moves out and, and you have to prove yourself again. And I, I think a lot of editors uh, 
don't uh, respect history and and uh, respect experience. From that's from my experience anyway. But um, still make a living. Um, I would I would be making a lot more money if I was still in sports marketing. But uh, you know. I, as I tell my kids, I have three kids in their 20s, and I've uh, told them, you know, we're not put on earth to work, we're put here to live, and work is a means to enjoy life. So pick something you really enjoy doing and, uh, and get to it and be mm-hmm. good at it. So I have two musicians and a, an architecture student. <laughs> so um, they're, uh, they're following their passions. Well, because that's, that's a part of the plan as a parent, is you have to have at least, you know, get your kids into good careers so then they can look after you when you're <laughs> yeah, exactly like my daughter's you know going to school to be a vet so you know i'm covered <laughs> well, my, my brother's a veterinarian actually and uh te- was teaching at the royal veterinary college in england so uh so I, I know about the the work that goes into being a veterinarian a lot of it's uh it's not an easy profession but no. uh, you know like a lot of things these days more more difficult more difficult so how did you fall into wildlife photography and the adventures around that? Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've traveled, um, I've been to more than 30 countries, I think. Uh, sometimes, like Japan, I've been six times. I've been to Ethiopia four times and China twice, uh, uh, Lebanon three times. Um, and it was on a trip to, I, I used to take a lot of photographs. I took a couple of courses in university in photography and it was more architecture stuff. And, uh, and I did sports photography for a few magazines uh, in the 80s and 90s. But I, I, I was in, on a trip to Ethiopia and uh, I, was at a, I was asked by a friend of mine, um, uh, if you know running, you would know the name Haile Geber Selassie. You know, Haile was a two-time Olympic champion, four-time world champion, broke 27 world records. And over the years of me interviewing him, uh, we've become friends. Now he's a very successful businessman. With He's got a 1,000-hectare um, coffee plantation. He's got uh, five or six hotel resorts, uh, a gold mine. Uh, he office, has office towers. He had Ethiopia's first cinema. He, he's into all those things. Well, he, asked, he insisted on my first trip to Ethiopia. He says, Paul, I want you to see my, my hotel resort in Lake Hawassa. It's very nice. He says, you, yeah, I want you to go see it. So I had been gone there with a film crew. I was, I was doing, getting them interviews with all the top Ethiopian runners because I know most of them. And uh, so we, we, uh, I had a couple of days off. So I said, yeah, highly, I'd love to. You know, so he, he had a driver take me. Uh, it's only 250 kilometers, but it takes about five or six hours because the roads are not so good and you have to stop when herds of uh, donkeys and uh, uh, goats and other wildlife, livestock, livestock cross the roads. Anyway, I, I was staying at his hotel in Lake Hawassa and I had a, 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 I'd sold my film camera and I had a digital camera and I was staying at Lake Hawassa, this hotel resort there. And I was being treated like royalty because Haile would call every couple of hours and see how I was doing. Was I enjoying myself? You know, he's the great host. He was still an Addis, but I was in Uwasa. And, the, and I guess he'd given instructions to the managers to make sure I had a good time. So early one morning, uh, I had uh, one of the managers take me out on a boat with a guide across Lake Hawassa to look for hippos. 
and uh, you, you know, there we go out, and and there's a couple of hippos in in the um, in the in the water. Um, my first picture of of two hippos is highly likes to remind me was of two hippos having sex. <laughs> and that's, anyway, so I had this, uh, had these pictures, but this experience. Uh, so the first animal I actually photographed was a hippo, which sounds very exotic. But I, I think back now and I look at those, uh, the people uh, on, the, on the beach of Lake Owasa, the locals were washing their clothes in the water you know, 40 or 50 meters away from the deadliest animal in Africa. And, I, and it occurred to me that seeing a hippo is nothing to them. Mm -hmm. They're more interested in looking at me, looking at the hippos. They're going, what, what are they, what's so fun, so much fun for this guy to see these hippos? We see them every day. And uh, so that was sort of my, my first thing, uh, first uh, uh, interest in, in photographing wildlife. I've always loved wildlife. You know, my, my parents, uh, we used to sit around my parents in the, when we were younger and watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom and any nature program that came on. And we were, the whole family were fascinated by it. And we did a lot of camping when we were in, in, uh, when we first came to Canada from, uh, from England. So, um, you know, I had that interest and then uh, I decided to upgrade my, my camera and I got an entry level Nikon and, and I started, you know, photographing local wildlife. And then, you know, I, I started using some of the trips where, um, you know, if somebody was paying my ticket, you know, flying me to um, Brazil, for instance, I worked for CBC in, in the Rio Olympics in 2016. So as soon as the Olympics were over, I, I flew from Rio to Sao Paulo, and then from Sao Paulo to a place called Cuiaba, which is in the Brazilian Pantanal. And um, so I, I, all I had to pay for was my ticket from Rio to Cuiabá and back. I arranged for the CBC folks to fly me home from Rio uh, 10 days later. So I had time to spend at this ranch in, in Cueva. I had a guide pick me up at the Cueva airport, drive me five hours down this, I would, they call it a, the Transpantanal Highway, but it's really, um, you can't even call it a dirt road in some places. The driver literally had to get out in some places and replace planks of wood so we could cross these uh, streams because uh, otherwise there's no way to cross it. And, uh, you know, so anyway, so I, I spent five days on that trip photographing jaguars with a guide and getting up every morning at five and being on a boat at six o'clock in the morning. And, you know, they, the hotel would pack a lunch for us and, and the guide and I, there's the two of us would be on this boat and with remote controlled, um, uh, sorry, uh, radios, uh, the, all the guides would, would communicate with one another to give other photographers a heads up as where they might find a Jaguar. So one, when one guy would see a Jaguar, they get on the radio and everybody turns the boats around and goes looking to the same spot. Mm. So, so, you know, so, so it was, um, and I, I ended up doing, uh, uh, stories for two magazines in a British newspaper on that trip, uh, just on Jaguars. So, so it's it sort of, um, you know, I've, I've just become uh, obsessed with wildlife photography and, and spreading the me message that we share the planet with all this wildlife and every, every form of wildlife has its part. You know, um, uh, Catherine, you and I were talking um, last week uh, about uh, vultures 
And to most people, people look at vultures and they think, what, what an ugly bird. And, and if they died out, uh, you know, big deal. But in, in Africa, in Ethiopia in particular, the Ruppel's vulture and the griffin vulture are uh, endangered species because like farmers here and farmers in the United States and all around the world, uh, you know, they have, they have predators that look, attack their, their wildlife. So, so in the case of Eth in, in Ethiopia, it's wolves and hyenas. So the farmers will put poison in carcasses and, and then hope that the hyenas and, and wolves will eat it and die so they don't come and kill more. But the byproduct of that is, is uh, that vultures will come and feed on the carcass, eat the poison, and they die. But if you don't have, you don't have uh, vultures to take care of the carrion, uh, you, you get a, an enhanced possibility of, of uh, disease. So, but, you know, and you sort of see this when you travel around the world to these different places and uh, experience, uh, you know, that yeah, that's, that, that's a big topic. There has been some discussion, I think it was mm -hmm. on Rogan, he was talking about it, um, about diseases, right? And transmission from animals to humans and how really COVID right now, it is obviously it's very deadly and widespread, but there could be far worse diseases spread. So speaking to your point that you know, the life of every wildlife is, is important to our ecosystem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And it, it's, and it's amazing to me <clears throat> that, um, you know, no matter where you are, people take, uh, local wildlife for granted. And, um, <clears throat> I, I'm losing my voice a little bit. I apologize, but, um, there's been, uh, you know, where I, where I live in Cambridge, uh, I can sit on my balcony most mornings, and, and I and I have been with since COVID. Um, I'll make my pot of coffee, sit outside, uh, you know, seven o'clock, seven thirty in the morning, and, and I've got my coffee. My I read my New York Times on my laptop, and I've got my camera with a lens, long lens on it, ready, because on, in the wooded area behind me, I've seen Cooper's hawks, I've seen uh, merlins, which is another form of falcon. Uh, I've seen. Um, Foxes is usually a fox that will come by uh, most mornings, and this is right out outside. You know, deer and and everything, and um, you know, it it it's just if people take the time to look around and and not be in such a hurry, they're going to see these these things and then appreciate them more. So I do a lot of presentations. You know, uh, I'm doing one January 28th for ID Exchange which will be on, uh, I'm calling it World Wildlife Encounters. And it'll be, you know, some of the highlights of my travels, um, you know, and, and the pictures that go with them. And, I, and I'm actually working on a book on the same token. I want to take people around the world where I've gone to Ethiopia, to, you know, nice. uh, Patagonia and places, and then bring them back to lo appreciate local wildlife, you know, like the, the wolves I've been photographing up in Killarney uh, the last five weeks and uh, bears and so on, as well as bald eagles that are 10 minutes drive from here. There's, you know, uh, we have bald eagles on the Nith River and the Grand River. And, um, you know, if you take the time and, and know where to look, you, you'll see them fishing. You know, it's, it's uh, incredible. Well, and that's the thing. It's like most people, even if they do outdoor activities, 
uh, are too active to see any animals because it usually requires being, uh, you know, still and quiet for a while. Mm-hmm. Right? Because a lot of times, you know, because we make so much noise when we're going through an area, everything's gone by the time you get there. That's why, you know, a lot of people don't realize, like if you're out in the forest, uh, you know, in Algonquin or Killarney, there's bears around you and you never see them because yeah, you yeah. drives them off. Yeah. Well, so what, what are your tips to have that experience? Gear, tips, food, you know? For, for, be, for being out doing wildlife photography? Yeah. yeah, like to actually get to see them. Well, like, like you say, um, uh, one thing is, uh, unless you're in bear country, uh, uh, be quiet <laughs> when you're out there. Um, it, you don't want to surprise a bear, so it's it's best to uh, you know not to sneak up on a bear and, and or you know. Um, I think most human and bear encounters that end badly are ones where uh, a bear hasn't heard uh, a person approaching. But if you're hiking with somebody else, it's okay to talk, but you're, you're going to, um, you know, probably the, the, one of the foremost experts on, on black bears in, in Canada is a guy named Mike McIntosh at a place called Bear With Us. And uh, I met Mike because in 2018, I was camping in Killarney. Uh, I always go in, I prefer to go September, October, November. Uh, when there's fewer people around and it's quieter and, and you have access to wildlife uh, more readily. Well, I had a, a black bear cub that was um, uh, foraging for acorns, probably 50, 60 meters away from my tent for three days. And uh, I wrote about this uh, bear for um, uh, Grand Magazine. And the, the story was reprinted in the record newspaper and a bunch of other papers. But uh, I watched this bear for three days and, and she was, there was no siblings. There was no mother. And, uh, you know, she was basically, uh, looking very forlorn. I mean, I have pictures of her lying down like a puppy and just, just staring at me with her head, you know, on her hands, on, on her paws. And, um, my last night camping there, uh, about two o'clock in the morning, I heard this loud, very, very husky sounding roar. It wasn't a wolf. It wasn't, uh, uh, I doubt it was a cougar. Uh, it, it, I'm guessing, and I'm, I, I assume it was an adult bear. And the next morning I couldn't find the, the cub. And I thought, you know, I know adult bears, uh, males will, will kill cubs. Um, I, I, you know, anyway, I went looking for this cub and I couldn't find her. And I was leaving for Sudbury the next day to visit my son, uh, who's an architecture student up there. So I, uh, I went into the office at Killarney and I told them about the cub and they said, we're aware of the cub and, and she won't survive the winter without her mother. We're going to have to call the ministry. So um, she was eventually um, uh, darted and taken to bear with us where Mike McIntosh was at that time. He had 50 bears, uh, bear cubs. Uh, he's got 68 there this year. Uh, it's worse. Uh, you know, all these are orphan cubs. And uh, it's the conflict uh, with residential hunters, mainly uh, people shooting bears, not knowing that, that it's a sow uh, with cubs that are perhaps hidden away. So the, the poor cubs are left to fend for themselves and, and without intervention probably aren't going to survive. 
But one of the things I learned from Mike was, was he said to me, the amount of time you spend outdoors up in, in bear country, he says, you've probably had hundreds of bear encounters and didn't know it. Mm -hmm. Something that you and I have talked about, Winston, where, you know, when you, you, they're out there, there's, there's thousands of bears, but they don't want to be seen. They don't want to interact with people. Uh, the, the unfortunate thing is when, uh, you know, people who don't know what they're doing are, are um, leaving food out in campgrounds, uh, on, on backcountry trails, uh, things like that, that, you know, the, the, they attract bears, uh, for the easy pickings. That's why a lot of, uh, rural areas have, um, uh, dumps, you know, town dumps and so on. And like in Killarney, they have bears going there all the time uh, because they, they found that they can get food there. I mean, one of the, <laughs> I know a lot of people in Killarney now, I've been going there for four years and I've been there five times uh, since October, late of October. And we, here we are in December. I was there last weekend, in fact. And I go into this place called Pitfields and the, and the guy, it's a, it's a, um, a variety store and, and, and grocery store. And uh, uh, the fellow there, he's, he, I'll say to him, have you, have you seen bears? He says, oh, yeah, there's lots of bears. You pull into the dump. He says, they'll, they'll help you unload. <laughs> so, you know, it's, they, they accept the fact that the bears are coming in there because it's easy pickings. And, um, you know, I, it's, you know, if you, if you, if you want, if you want to see uh, uh wildlife you've got to be patient and, and know what to look for as well you know um uh, you know I've, I've been fortunate to photograph a lot of wolves this year up in the killarney area um i did a blog on my website uh, a couple of weeks ago about um uh what i'd seen i saw this beautiful gray uh female wolf when i was leaving to come back to cambridge about three weeks ago she'd crossed the road uh the highway 637 and uh, uh, some of the experts will say that, uh, you know, you shouldn't be seeing wolves around rows. If you do, there's something wrong with them. And I don't know if that's completely true because I don't believe it. Because if you look at a map of the Killarney Peninsula, there's only one road going through it. And I'm, I'm sure I've seen these wolves and they, they'll come out onto the road. They'll trot along the road and they'll cross a bridge. Then they'll go in, into the woods and vanish. So they use the roads as, as uh, you know, sort of to get to get elsewhere, you know, for for their for their roots. But um, uh, you know, I, this particular evening, I saw saw this uh, this wolf, and I I raced my car down the road. There's very little traffic on that road as well. Raced across the road and slammed on the brakes. Remember to put put my my car into park. And uh, jumped out. I always have the camera on, on my passenger seat, and I jumped out, and, and I'm I'm forever adjusting the the um, the controls on my, my camera, um, you know, so I, so that I can be sure that I'm going to be, if not perfect exposure, pretty close to it when I when by the time I jump out, and then I adjust on the fly. But um, I jumped out of the, at this particular time, and I'm looking up and down this this um, side this ditch at the side of the road. And I'm looking for this wolf and, and I'm going, where did she go? I, I can't see her. And then um, I looked up and, and, I, and I tried to guess where she had crossed and if she had gone up, you know, trotted up the side of this hill. And there she was behind some trees and bushes staring at me. 
And and I said I said don't you go anywhere. I'm you know got my camera out. I'm I'm photographing her. I fired off maybe a half a dozen shots before she turned and, and and ran. And I and I I believe it's the same wolf I saw two weeks later, uh, a couple of kilometers away from you know. But she came. I went looking for her that day, and I I, I was driving along this road very slowly, and um, and I'm thinking okay I saw her along this stretch of road. Uh, I wonder if I'm going to see her along here. And as luck would have it, uh, I, I'm driving 30, 40 kilometers al along this uh, road. And she came running past me, just trotting past me, uh, you know, right in the, in the other lane. And I stopped, I stopped my car, jumped out, and I have these shots of her as she, she trotted away from me with her head turned towards me the whole time. And she she stopped and then darted into the into the woods, and uh, was gone. But um, you know, it, it, there's there's so much wildlife uh, out there. Uh, you know, a lot of it has become used to humans. Um, you know, I, I I always tell people that uh, I've done things that I wouldn't recommend uh, a photographer do. Um, but I, but I feel confident one-on-one -on -one with an animal that the animal is not going to be spooked or is not going to be dangerous. And, I, you know, I think back to one of my trips to Ethiopia. I, I hired a guide uh, to take me to the Bali Mountains in the south of Ethiopia. I spent a night there with, uh, at Haile's Resort first and, again, saw hippos. And, and, you know, whenever I talk to Haile, he just thinks I'm the luckiest man in the world because – not everybody gets to see these hippos. But anyway, <clears throat> the guy took me uh, into the Bali Mountains, and we went looking for the, the Ethiopian wolf, and the best place to find them is in uh, the Bali Mountains. And these are uh, the same size as our wolves, but they're red, and they look like giant foxes. Mm -hmm. they're, they're called Ethiopian wolves or Ethiopi uh, Abyssinian foxes is another name for them. But they're, but they're a wolf. And uh, there we were on this, my, my first morning out, and I spotted one, and I've got a guide and a driver, and, and I said, there's one there, and I pointed on the hill, and they, and they went, where? And, and I joked with them, I said, why am I paying you? <laughs> but uh, they had a good laugh over it. But, uh, you know, I knew what I was looking for, and, and it was trotting back and forth when it saw our car, and all she wanted to do, this this wolf was to come down and have a drink of water. There was a water hole near where we were stopped. So I said to uh, the guide and the driver, three of us were standing on the side of the road. And I know she was intimidated because she was trotting back and forth. And um, I said, you know, maybe if you guys get in the van, uh, she'll come down for a drink. So the two of them got in the van. So now she only sees one person on the road less danger than, than she would have uh, felt uh, prior. And then she, um, uh, so she came down and took a drink of water. And she, every now and then she's got water dripping from her tongue and, she, and I got a whole bunch of shots of her stand there looking at me. And then another vehicle, I mean, there's no traffic in, in these national parks. But on that particular occasion, another van happened to come by and they saw me taking pictures of the wolf and the van stopped right in front of me. And all these tourists are leaning out the window with their uh, uh, cameras and spooked the wolf. And she ran across the road and, and onto this uh, plateau. It's the Saneti Plateau. It's about 14,000 feet 
above sea level. No trees grow there. It's just, you can see as, you know, it's flat and you can see forever. So I, I said to my guide, you know, when the vehicle, other vehicle drove away, I said to the guide, I'm going to follow her. And he said, oh, no, no, no. I said, no, I'll be okay. He says, but she, you know, it's a wolf, he says. And I said, yeah, don't worry. Uh, she'll run before she'll attack me because it's wide open. I'm not cornering her. Yeah. So I, I followed her uh, across the plateau. And at, at, on that trip, I only had a 70 to 300 millimeter lens. I now carry a 150 to 600, uh, which is you know my go-to lens with a Nikon D500 camera. And uh, the, the 70 to 300 meant that you'd have to be so much closer to get these pictures. And I followed her for an hour, hour and a half, I guess. And for 45 minutes of that time, I was sitting on the ground and she's going about her business. She's digging in these holes looking for mole-headed rats, which live at high altitudes and on the plains up there. And these rats are like our uh, gophers or, or um, groundhogs. And they're, they're you know, they, the foxes, uh, the, the foxes, the wolves go looking for them every morning. So there she was digging in the holes and every now and then she looked at me to see if I was uh, still there. And I'm sitting on the, on the ground and she's ignoring me. And it's just one-on-one -on -one, uh, uh, experience, you know. And when she couldn't find a, a, a mole-headed rat after about 45 minutes there, she turned and, and trotted off. And I walked a kilometer back to where, my, where the road was and where the guide was and uh, delighted with the pictures. And, uh, you know, um, it, well, it, how far were you from uh, the wolf when she was digging for the mole-headed rats? Um, I'm looking at my window at some trees. I'm thinking uh, uh, it was probably 20 or 30 meters. Okay. So it, it, it's relatively close, but not right upon her. You know, like she obviously, uh, you know, it's a rule of thumb that if, if, if an animal uh, or, or a bird uh, stops doing what it was doing because of your presence and, yeah. and you're too close and, and you shouldn't be there. Okay. That, that's a good rule. That's a good uh, takeaway. What are some other tips around that? So Obviously, you're not running towards the animal, but how long should you expect, you know, for it to take to get as close as you can? Do you know what I mean? Like, what are some tips? What are some? Um, it, it, it's, uh, I mean, I wouldn't do that with a, with a grizzly. You know, um, I, I, I was in Alaska uh, uh, what, in 2017, and I was uh, a, a photographer friend of mine had drawn me a map of where I would find grizzly bears during the salmon spawning in September. So I, I went exactly where he, he said, and I, I had, he'd written on the back of a placemat at a bar we were having chicken wings at. <laughs> and because I said to him, I'm, I'm out here in Yukon for 10 days. Pete, where do I go to see mm. grizzlies? I got to see a grizzly. And he drew this map in Haynes, Alaska. So I drove down there and got a hotel room and then went looking for the grizzlies. And, you know, the grizz this grizzly came out, out onto the river to fish for the salmon uh, after about... You know, I'd been there maybe um, four hours. And uh, so, you know, I, I was thinking to myself, okay, I hope Pete was right about this. Uh, and anyway, a grizzly came out and, and, uh, and I watched it. It was in the middle of this river and I was probably uh, 50 meters away, 40, 50 meters. Um, 
but I, my car was relatively close and the, the doors were unlocked in case I need to make a run for it. But uh, that's the other thing. Uh, you're not going to outrun a bear, um, you know, on open ground. They're, they're, they're too fast, um, you know, and, and you wouldn't want to uh, trigger their uh, predatory instinct because if you turn and run, a, a bear is going to give chase uh, like a wolf would. Um, it's, you know, uh, I, I haven't had... I haven't had to do that to protect myself. I haven't had to back away slowly, but um, you know, the experts do tell you that. And they, all the literature I've read tells you that. Be, be oh, I was in the Yukon as well. And we were in Haines and we didn't see any bears. <laughs> so finally we get to Skagway. We're like, we need to ask where to find a bear. So same thing, the salmon were running. We went to this field and there were these two, adolescent bears no mother but you could tell they were new at it because they weren't being very successful um so we just parked and watched as the river came by our car they were just constantly coming down and then there's this photographer that was out there no word of a lie he must have been 10 feet away from them and we're like oh my god this is gonna be so bad <laughs> do you know what i mean and he made it he was fine but i don't think i'd ever do that well, there's a wonderful uh, program uh, on um, Netflix. Uh, that Canon, uh, I'm a Nikon photographer, but Canon does this uh, uh, re remarkable series called Tales, Tales by Light. Yes, yes. And, and there's, there's um, one of my favorite photographers is a, an American named Art Wolf. And uh, on one of his episodes, it's, it's funny because he uh, part of the episode he's in the Ethiopian highlands in the Simeon mountains where I went in 2017 and he's photographing in the exact same locations. I was uh, these gelato baboons and uh, a lama guy are the, you know, the, uh, the, the bearded vulture that uh, they're beautiful to watch these, these things. These are vultures that, that they eat bones. You know, most vultures just eat the flesh, but they will, they'll go and, and take the bones and uh, fly three or 400 meters in the air and drop the, the bones on, uh, onto rocks below, which shatters them. And they go down and they've got, now got mouth-sized mouth pieces and they'll eat the bones. But um, Art Wolf was, was in, in that, that place in Ethiopia, the Simeon Mountains. But then part of the episode, he's actually in Alaska uh, photographing grizzly bears. And he, he, has, he sets up his tripod in the middle of this stream, which is only, I'm guessing, a, a foot or less deep, but it's, it, this, it's full of salmon. And there's a dozen grizzly bears all around. They're running past him. And the first time I saw that, I thought, you know, I, I couldn't do that. Um, but I know, now I know that they're not interested in a, in a human. You're not doing anything to them. They're interested in the salmon. Yeah. You know, and it's the same with, in Ontario, we have black bears. We don't have grizzlies. And, you know, black bears, they have no interest in people unless you've got something that they want. And, and if you're, you know, um, if, if you own a cottage and you're leaving pet food out on the porch or you're not clearing away rotten apples that have dropped, uh, you know, uh, and they're on the ground, those are attractants. And, and most people's reaction when they see a bear is, is going to be, oh, no, I got a bear on my property. And they call the Ministry of Natural Resources 
and and the ministry doesn't want to kill them. So they'll say, you know, uh, shoo them away, you know, uh, bang some pots and make some loud noise and frighten them. And that's what you should do, you know. But uh, there's, there's people out in rural areas who will shoot the bears. And that's how we end up with orphan cubs. But um, so, you know, it, it, it's, I, I have, I, I apparently, according to Mike McIntosh at Bear With Us, I apparently have had many bear encounters and, and don't know about them. But the ones that I've had, I've been perfectly uh, safe. Um, you know, I don't go out of my way to get too close. Um, uh, it would be a different story. Like what Art Wolf is doing is, is he knows that, uh, that all they're interested there is in, is in the, uh, the salmon, you know. Um, there's there's a, another photographer um, I'm thinking of, um, British photographer, name escapes me, it'll probably come to me by the end of our conversation. Um, but this fella uh, has a, a picture uh, of a, a polar bear and he claims he's got the world's first selfie taken in a polar bear's eye because he's two feet away from a polar bear. Yeah, and, but what it is, you know, there's a, it's, and I've read about this and I do, I, I read constantly about wildlife and uh, polar bears um, you know, are very, very dangerous, extremely dangerous. And uh, I mean, people in Churchill walk around with guns and, uh, you know, escort each other because bears come into town. So, um, but, but this fellow, there's a period of time where they and the, and the locals want the same thing. They want to harvest fish. So they're not as dangerous, apparently, at that period of time. So when this, this fellow was up there uh, taking pictures of, of polar bears, he's in a boat, and these two, two polar bears came to the edge of the ice, and, and they're sniffing him, and he's getting very, very low to, the, to their uh, eye level and with a wide-angle lens and taking pictures. And that, to me, is, is uh, I mean, a lot of wildlife photographers uh, would, would condemn him for, for taking chances, um, but he got, he got the shot. Now, I'm not condoning that myself, um, but there are occasions where a photographer will get a great shot. I'm, I'm, my mind is jumping ahead now to um, a conversation I had with Steve Winter from National Geographic. Um, Steve was, I met Steve, he's twice won the World Wildlife Photographer of the Year Award. And Steve was, I met him in, um, in Brazilian Pantanal in 2016. Uh, and he spoke at Center in the Square in Kitchener uh, two years ago, maybe three years ago. And uh, we had lunch that day, he and I, and, and we were talking about the Pantanal. And he was down there for, I think, three months. I was there for four or five days and, and the first morning we, we photographed cubs and you know and I remember saying to him my first morning in the Pantanal and I'm seeing cubs you know unbelievable beginner's luck and he said every day in the Pantanal is beginner's luck well uh, we had during our lunch we were talking about these jaguars and he pulled out his cell phone and he showed me a picture on his cell phone of a, a jaguar splashing through the water next to his boat and he said i took took this with a wide angle lens now any any of your viewers will, will, will recognize that a wide angle lens means you've got to be up close to it because it tends to distort 
the, uh, uh, the, the, the angle of view. So he's very close. I said, how close were you to this Jaguar? And he said, from here to that next table, we're in the restaurant. Oh. So like five feet away. And, and uh, you know, it, it amazes me, uh, he, you know, his, his lesson there was that Jaguar wasn't interested in him. That Jaguar was going after Cayman Crocodile. You know, they, they're not, in, you know, I, I had an experience with, a, with my, my guide, Fabrizio Dorilio, uh, uh, my guide in, in the Pantanal. He'd worked for several weeks with Steve before I came down there. He took a week off of working with Steve to guide me for, for the time I was there. And one occasion, we were tracking a Jaguar, and it was, it was probably, um, uh, it, it was on the, on the shore and, we, and it went down this, uh, this stream, the side of the stream. And it was, it was basically looking for wildlife. It was on the, tra the, the, the trail of something. And all these boats of photographers, there was uh, Gavin Thurston who shoots for uh, planet earth and all the, the uh, um, what's his name? Uh, David Attenborough for all his programs. So Gavin Thurston was there with a film crew. For, they were doing a show for Netflix. Uh, there, was, there was Bertie Gregory from National Geographic who was shooting uh, video for National Geographic uh, in another boat and Steve, and there was a, a bunch of it, uh, Italian photographers and tourists as well, like about eight or nine boats. And we're all following this Jaguar uh, slowly as it's, it's and, and you, if you know, know how cats uh, walk around your apartment, around your house, you know, they're, they're, they go slowly, they conserve every bit of energy, they sleep most of the day, and jaguars are just the same, but when they're ready to, to, to go, they'll, they'll spring into life. So this thing was walking along, and all of a sudden, all the boats are getting bump, bumping around, and, and our boat is closest to, the, to this, the path of this jaguar. And I'm zooming back from my, my camera, because we're so close, we're probably... Uh, 15 feet away from this Jaguar. And I'm, and I'm imagining this Jaguar running, taking two steps and leaping and having me for lunch. And I said to Fabrizio, Fabrizio, I, uh, he, he's awfully close. And he says, oh, I know this Jaguar. He's laid back. So, so he wasn't worried about this Jaguar. And I told that story to Steve Winter and, and Steve said, yeah, he's not interested in you because you, you, you brush your teeth, you use deodorant. They don't want that smell. You know, it, it's, it's not, it, it's not uh, uh, something they enjoy. So they're not interested in a human. So, um, you know, and that's a guy who's been uh, shooting for National Geographic for you know, probably 30 years. So, you know, over, the, over time, you pick up a lot of these things and um, you know, I'm still very, very cautious in comparison to uh, most of these guys. Well, I got, I got a question, two questions for you. So in terms of safety, right, and distance to the animal, um, you can cover off a lot of that with lenses. So what are the lenses that you recommend people travel with for, for the purpose of well, being safe and still getting the shot? Well, it, it's funny. Um, I, I have a uh, 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 it's considered a budget lens, the Tamron 150 to 600 millimeter lens. And it, it's, it, it cost me when it came out, I think it was $1,300. Uh, 
Now, a prime lens at 600 millimeters is going to cost you more like $18,000, <laughs> right? Now, it's going to be far better quality, but they weigh a ton. And uh, if you're going to get a prime, prime lens, uh, you, you need to, you're not going to be able to handhold it because it's too heavy to hold. So you're going to need uh, a tripod. So a tripod for that is going to set you back another $800 to $1,000. And then you're going to need what's called a gimbal head, which is allows you to to move the camera around uh, with it, with ease to to track birds in flight or animals or whatever. That's another eight hundred to a thousand dollars. So you're going to have deep pockets to do that. And and the other part of it is that um, sometimes, uh, you know, I, for instance, um, when I was hiking in um, in uh, the Simeon Mountains in Ethiopia. Uh, I was there for four days. We were camping at four different camps uh, along this this route of the, you know, through the, the most majestic uh, countryside. It's like I, I it's like the, I call it the Grand Canyon on steroids. It, it's spectacular. Nobody expects to see, uh, you know, th these pictures and think that it's Ethiopia because it, it looks more like uh, Utah or, or um, you know Arizona, you know, the, the, the Grand Canyon areas. And uh, but so I'm hiking. I took two camera bodies and two lenses, a wide angle lens for landscapes. And I took my 150 to 600 millimeter lens. Now, you can imagine you know, I'm, I'm hiking and, and we're going up and down mountains, uh, you know, at uh, 14,000 feet above sea level. So you've got that issue of, of lack of oxygen. Um, I remember, in, in fact, Art Wolf in his uh, Netflix program, uh, talking about how he was out of breath trying to hold the camera still, you know, uh, to get pictures of a Lammergeier. And he, and he mentions this in his program. And it's true. You're, you're, you know, now I know that he didn't hike where we did. He probably, there's a road nearby. They probably went with all their film crew by car to these locations. You know, I hiked for four days. I wouldn't be able to carry a tripod, a gimbal head and a, a prime lens yeah. all that way i can carry by the uh, tripod mount that's on the camera i can carry my my camera that way and my guide uh, jonas um he was he was good enough to he wasn't struggling with the altitude like i was um and I'm, i was in good shape uh, for that trip as well i you know really got myself in good shape um you know he would carry my uh, longer lens sometimes and then we'd swap like he, you know but you know, we you know there, there's a reason for um, uh, uh, that I have that lens. Uh, could I get better shots with a prime lens? Uh, in some cases, yes, they'd be sharper. But uh, newspaper and magazine editors are buying my pictures as they are, and I sell the occasional print as well. And uh, so I, I'm I'm content with what I have. Um, you, you know. I was in Patagonia in December and uh, the same situation. Uh, we were tracking pumas and you're, you're up at four 15 in the morning in the back of a van at four 30 and the, and the guide, the tracker, and the, there was three of us, the, the tracker, the guide and me, I always like to go by myself and hire the best tracker or guide. Uh, they're going to get me into position, know what I want. And uh, so, I'm, so we're in the back of the van at you know, 4.30 and we drive to a location and the sun hasn't come up yet. 
And, but when it comes up, it'll be up for 18 hours in the Southern Hemisphere in December. So there we are. And uh, uh, we have coffee in the back of the van while the guide, uh, you know, is, is, uh, he's got his binoculars out and he's scouring the landscape for clues to the location of a puma. So, uh, you know, on the last night, uh, the last day, uh, it was the last evening. It was, it was, it, it, we went out, it, we'd go out in the morning at, as I say, 4.30 in the morning. Uh, some would be up by five and we'd stay out till 10 or 11, which is, uh, in any, any other circumstance, that would be a full day's shooting. But then we'd go back for a rest uh, and lunch and I'd, I would download my pictures to the computer um, and then, or go for a little hike, you know, in the area and then come back. And then we'd go out again at four o'clock in the afternoon till 10 o'clock at night and sometimes 11 o'clock. So on the last night, there we were, uh, you know, uh, we had, um, uh, I, I joked with the guide and the tracker. I said, uh, this is my last night here. We're going to see a hunt tonight. We're going to see a successful puma hunt is what I meant. And, uh, you know, they laughed, you know, because uh, it's not, it's, it's, it's not often seen, put it that way. So um, they were laughing and anyway, we, we went out and so here's uh, the guide, uh, the tracker, he's got his binoculars out and he's looking across the top of this mountain. He sees a herd of guanacos. They look like llamas, but you know, they're smaller uh, camelide. And there's a herd of them and he's looking for clues for the location of a puma because they can outrun a, a puma at long distance. The puma's got to get close enough to them to, uh, to, to catch them in a short burst or he won't eat. So he's, got his, he's watching the, the herd and he, and he notices, you know, one, one of the sentries. You know, it seems like the, the herds will have one who's sort of designated to, while the others are grazing, one is, is checking out all the surroundings. So he spots this, this, the head of a puma with his binoculars. And he said, there's a puma up there. Okay, get everything you need now. We can't come back to the vehicle. We have to hike. So again, you know, on the spur of the moment, this wasn't planned. Uh, I'm glad I had my, you know, budget le uh, level 150 to 600 millimeter uh, lens because it I can carry it and hold it. We had to hike three kilometers to get into position. We had to go up this mountain, go around where, where the puma was located so she couldn't see us and then get into position on the other side. So it was three kilometers of, of walking or hiking, whatever you want to call it, and then, and then be ready to handhold. And as soon as we got to, into the location, she saw us, the puma, and she, she stood up. And then she started walking along the edge of this, this cliff and I'm firing away all these pictures and um, Rex Bringleson, who's my guide is, is next to me and he's taking pictures as well. And, and our tracker has gone up uh, onto the top of this hill and he's, he's, he's looking at both the advancing Puma and the herd of guanacos are on the other side of this, this peak. And uh, we're taking pictures the puma's walking towards us, coming closer and closer. Rex says to me, and I thought he knew what he was doing. He says, he says, Paul, I feel a bit self-conscious with a puma walking towards us. And I'm, I, I looked at him and I said, I, I thought you knew what you were doing. <laughs> and 
he's just uh, anyway, he, he's just kind of joking. Anyway, the, the, the Puma, you know, again, uh, was, was approaching, then slowly veered off and, you know, walking very slowly up the top and went over the top of this, this, this peak. We went around the peak where our, our tracker was and we, uh, we stood there and he was saying, stay right there, stay right there. And the Puma lay down behind some grass and you could see her on the top of this hill and she's looking down at us. And she, but she's more interested in the guanacos and they're grazing on the side of this cliff and they're coming up slowly moving closer and closer and closer. And my heart was just about pounding here now because now we can see there's going to be a hunt like this, this puma is going to, these guanacos don't see the puma and they're walking into her target zone. And uh, anyway, Justin, uh, you know, we we're standing there and, and, all of a sudden she launches her attack and, and I, I'm able to handhold click, 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 click. The, the herd changes direction and running past us to avoid going over this cliff. So the Puma changes direction and she's running head on and I've got shots of her coming right past me, almost right head on. And she's sprinting by at the bottom of the hill. They disappeared because it was a little gully and I had to anticipate where they might reappear. And I did, and just then, the guanaco was a, it was a baby. They call them chilangos. It came came out of the gully, and with the puma, literally on its tail, and she sunk her claw, claws into the back of it and dragged her down. So I got the shots of the hunt, and then she dragged the, the she killed it and dragged it away and uh, started eating it, which which I also documented to a point. And then I, when I was satisfied, I had uh, enough gore. I, I said, okay, that's it. And uh, we went back and we had a celebration at the ranch we're staying on and uh, everybody was buying each other drinks and, and I had stopped drinking, but I had a couple of beers that night. And I, and I said to uh, Rex, I said, Rex, uh, how many times have you seen a hunt? He said, I've been guiding for 20 years. That's my second. So it is ex extremely, extremely rare. And I was extremely lucky. Well, I think what some of the takeaways are here is um, carrying light enough load, right? Mm -hmm. That you can go into the, the grounds of the animals, not just from the roads. Um, you want to be fit. You want to, you know, be uh, adjusted to the altitude if there's an altitude adjustment. But um yeah. And it's patience, right? Patience and having the guide. I have another question because you're going to some pretty exotic, not necessarily, you know, uh, what's the word I want to say, uh, developed, civilized, like in the developed world, like uh, my family in Brazil, the fact, you know, I'm curious as to how you work out the logistics to find a guy that will safely, not corruptly, <laughs> you know, not uh basically um kidnap you and and then hold you <laughs> because that happens you can't even wear and i thought i was a pretty savvy traveler and i was listening to the fedor's travel guide i'm like hey to you uncle roy you know can can you take us to the mountains and he's like what i, I refuse to go there it's so isolated and you know you'll definitely be hijacked and like no you don't travel at night in a car on a highway no they'll just like barricade the highway <laughs> and take you at gunpoint you know, for your money. So how do you safely explore these places with very expensive camera? And yeah. Well, the, the, um, 
I, when we were in Rio, uh, I was more scared than I've ever been anywhere in the world. And, I, and I've, I've, been, I've walked the streets of Tripoli, Libya, when Colonel Gaddafi was in power. And I've been to Moscow, where you, know, you have uh, criminals everywhere. And I've been, I've been to a lot of uh, places that have scared me. Rio, um, CBC was worried about all of us. So our drivers were instructed to take different routes every day to the stadium. Uh, we, we were supposed to go nowhere on our own. We were, you know, and they basically, they, were, they instilled this fear in you. Yeah, so I, yeah. didn't, I didn't enjoy Rio so much. But when I got to, uh, out to uh, Porto Joffre, which is, which is where this ranch was, where uh, I met up with my guide, um, you know, I was worried about leaving my camera equipment in my room to go to my meals. Mm -hmm. And I was told, everybody here has expensive cameras. Don't worry about it. And, and it, it basically what's happened in some of these places, they, they cater now to ecotourism because um, uh, it, and it's, it's the same in a lot of places. The ranch I stayed in, in Patagonia, uh, uh, it's called... Um, uh, Laguna Amaga, and it's just outside Torres del, del Paine National Park. And it's a huge, huge ranch. I think it's like 40 kilometers long. And the, what, what has happened now, the, the owners of the ranch have realized that they can make more money by having tourists come there and see the pumas than by shooting a puma so that they, uh, so the puma won't may, maybe attack one of their uh, sheep. Yeah. So, and that's happened in Brazil as well. Okay. So when I stayed in Brazil, uh, the ranchers there, 98% of the land in the Pantanal is owned by uh, uh, ranchers. And, and they are now doing the same thing. You know, uh, they're, they're, you know they're building uh, uh, hotels, uh, not really hotels, but uh, accommodation for people who want to come down and see the wildlife. So how do you find these ranches that are reputable? Um, through the guides and uh, whenever I go somewhere um, I will uh, like I, when I go to Ethiopia I've been there four times and three of those times I've, I've used the same company called Boundless Ethiopia uh, it's an Ethiopian woman and her Dutch husband who own the company so I, uh, they've always done things and they, and they are the, the minutia of detail they go through is, is what I want to see. Mm -hmm. So I trust them implicitly. Um, the, uh, in, when, I, when I went to um, the Pantanal, I found Fabricio. Uh, he was recommended to me by another guide uh, who was rep reputably, uh, rep reputably the best Puma guide in the area. Uh, unfortunately, he, he told me he was busy. He had a, a client the same time I was going to be there, so he couldn't work with me. So he said, uh, but I can recommend my friend Fabricio at Pantanal Safaris. So I sent an email to, to Fabricio. Uh, we did a deal. And, uh, he, you know, he, he wanted me to stay longer because that, you know, to make sure we saw Jaguars. But we saw Jaguars every day when I was there. We had a, you know... Uh, jaguars, caiman crocodiles, and capybaras, and yeah. all kinds of stuff. Um, so it basically, uh, a lot of the websites too will have recommendations, you know, uh, from people. Uh, if I go, when I go to Kenya, for, I've never been to Kenya. 
eventually I want to do one of those safaris where my knees are no longer allowing me to do the hikes and the, you know, the outdoor stuff, then I, I would, I would fly to Kenya. I'd go to the Mazi Mara. Mm -hmm. I've been in touch with, um, uh, the, the Scots, um, the, the husband and wife team, and uh, do a Netflix uh, program, Tales by Light, as well. Um, and they, um, uh, you know, basically, I, I know that they're photographers. If I if I pay them money or somebody they recommend, I know I'm going to come back with with pictures and, and the best opportunities. There's a lot of companies out there. Uh, I saw it in the Pantanal, where you know we were. Uh, we'd found these cubs and it was, it was 35 Celsius. It was um, uh, like blinding heat basically and no cloud cover. And the, the, we knew the mother was with two cubs hidden away in, in these, in these bushes and we were sitting there waiting. And then she, she brought one cub down for a drink of water at the river so all the boats come out of our shore. We're on the other side of the river and we come across. It's not very wide there. And we were ta all taking pictures. And then she led that cub away and came back with the other one. And we took more pictures. And then they went back into the shade. And, and they, you could see one of them, you know, with, with its head down on its paws, just, just, just going to sleep in the shade. So we all retreated into the shade on the other side again. And <clears throat> this boat came along. And it was a, um, uh, owned by an American company. That, and there was a lot of resentment from the locals that the, some of the American companies were coming in there hiring non-licensed guides from Peru and uh, Venezuela and other South American countries, paying them peanuts, but, but not hiring locals. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so they, you know, this boat was, uh, but they give the tourists what they want. Um, <laughs> uh, I won't say which photographer it was, but one, uh, uh, one of them made a joke about one of these boats that came around uh, and he yelled, oh, here comes the battle cruiser. And it was, a, it was a, one of these American boats that had, everybody had a matching khaki uh, uniform. All the tourists had khaki uniforms and the hats and they had their lenses and cameras mounted to tripods that are built into the boat. They had cushioned seats, the whole thing, right? And uh, so, you know, it, it was like first class, but, you know, it, it, they probably paid a lot of money for that. Anyway, we had one of these boats come by us, and the, and the guide stopped the boat, and he's looking into the bush, wondering what we're looking at. And we're all sitting in, leaning back, leaning back in our boats, away from the, the heat, waiting to, for another appearance of these cubs. And uh, they stopped, you know, the, the, the foreign uh, uh, guide stopped. And he's looking at us, he's looking into the woods, doesn't see anything, and then drives on. And one of the, you know, one of the other guides that I, that I met down there, a uh, very respected guide, he, he said, yeah, nothing to see here, move on, in a sort of a, derogatory manner because they knew this guy was Peruvian and uh, you know, he's coming, he's taking jobs away and, and it's a, it's a particular American um, who's run afoul of the law apparently uh, down there. Um, I won't say his name, but 
um, there's a bit of controversy there. And, and that's, that's one of the things too, is, is, is the um, hiring, when you hi find a guide, um, those that hire locals mm -hmm. uh, are, are preferred. And um, you, you know the customs then, and uh, you, you, you know they're, they're uh, easier to work with as well and more knowledgeable. But you also want to be better received by the locals, right? So, mm -hmm. um, see, see, during COVID, I mean, uh, Hans, uh, who is is the owner of uh, Boundless Ethiopia, and I've I've done trips with them uh, three of the four times I've been there. I've I've done trips with him, and I'd recommend him in a, in a heartbeat. You know, he's gone overboard in a number of times. Um, you know, he's. Um, uh, he contacted me uh, and, and everybody else that has ever taken a, a trip with him uh, when COVID broke out. And he pointed out that, uh, you know, he's got most of his tourism in before COVID struck because that's, you know, the tourism season there is, you know, October. It's a dry season, October till February. And then you get the rainy season and then things slow down. But he said a lot of the people that work for him uh, had no income and the government wasn't doing anything for them, unlike our government. So there was a GoFundMe page. So we, we were putting money in there and we could, we could say, uh, like I wanted it to go to a particular person, you know, in his family. And you could, you could uh, delineate that. Hmm. And uh, I, 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 um, I was touched because I had a, I had an incident um, <laughs> Um, in, I was coming back from the Bali Mountains in 2015 in the southern part of Ethiopia. And uh, I was with a, my a guide and a driver. And uh, I was ecstatic because I had photographed these wolves that we talked about earlier. And I had got some lovely pictures of exotic birds and, and some landscape pictures and so on. I had a wonderful trip. And we're going through the town of Bakoji which to the runners in the audience uh, is famous. It's, it's the town of runners. There's a documentary film called the town of runners because uh, it's, it's where the Tiranesh Dababa and her sisters came from. They're all Olympic champions. It's where uh, Kennedy Sipakila and, and his brother came from and Dara Tartulu and all these other Olympic champions have, have come from the same town. We're driving through Bakoji and the kids are coming out of school. And there's hundreds of them come running across the road in the mid, you know, middle of the day. And uh, my driver ran over a child. And, um, you know, I, I, we heard all this screaming. And like he, he slammed, he'd slammed on his brakes. It's horrifying. And I see this, this nine or 10-year-old child, a little boy, crawling from underneath the vehicle. And we've run over his foot. So my guide, Dawit, he, uh, or the driver, he jumps out and, and he um, picks the boy up and puts him on the back seat of our van. I took off my sweat top and he's bleeding everywhere. I'm, I'm wrapping around his foot and I'm trying to do a first aid, you know, elevating his foot, try, you know, doing, you know, trying to stop the bleeding. And I said, where, where is there a hospital? Now you're in Bakoji, Ethiopia. And they said, there's one further down. I said, can you, can you call the hospital, let them know we're coming? So we drive, we race down there. Uh, the, the boy's brother, who's, who's older, uh, he climbed in the van with us. So we drive to the hospital. They take him in 
And uh, after about two hours, the, the doctor came out and he spoke English, of course. And he said, um, what happened? And I told him and he said, he said, he's going to be okay, but we're going to take him to Arcella, which is the, the, the nearest town. There's a surgeon there uh, that can do the surgery. And uh, so then we waited. Uh, the police arrived from Bakoji and, and they came and then they, they, we had to go with the police to the Bakoji police station. So, you know, here we are, and I'm just, I'm helpless, you know, and I'm still in shock from seeing, seeing this poor boy, um, you know, injured. And, and I was afraid that he would never walk again because it, it was, it was horrific. And uh, we, we got to the police station and, and uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a sort of a stockade with prisoners in it. There's a building uh, with, where there's soldiers or policemen dressed in police uniforms. There were two teenage boys in police uniforms that don't fit properly with machine guns. And they're waving at me, you know, like I, I'm the only uh, non-Ethiopian there. And uh, they're waving at me and... Uh, the police chief, I guess it was a police chief, came out and gave me a hug, you know, the greeting, traditional greeting, and he said, what happened? And I told him, and he went and looked at the vehicle, and, and then the next thing is I get a call from Hans, the, the tour operator from Addis. He said, Paul, the, um, the uh, 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 police have arrested Dawit, the driver, you know, under Ethiopian law, he has to be held until a judge can decide who's going to pay for what. And uh, so the, he said they've uh, uh, impounded the car, uh, the, the van. So uh, I'm going to, I'm sending another driver for you. He'll be there in four and a half or five hours. And I said, Hans, I've been here at the police station two hours. I was at the hospital two hours. I just want to get out of here. I said, uh, I'm going to call Haile, my friend Haile Gebrselassie. So I called Haile and he said, hey, Paul, where, where are you? And he'd been calling me every few hours until that afternoon. He says, where are you? And I said, I'm at the Pakoji police station. And he goes, what? What happened? What happened? And I told him, he said, are you okay? Did the boy die? And I said, no, he, he's, uh, uh, but he'll never walk again, I don't think. And he said, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. This happens all the time in Ethiopia. Look, what can I do? I can, I can have a driver there in half an hour. He can take you to Arcella, and you can stay in Derrida Tulu's hotel. A lot of the runners own hotels there. And Tulu, was, she was the first black African to win an Olympic gold medal in the 1992 Olympics. So um, he said, I can, you can go there. Uh, do you want me to do that? I said, yes, please. So within half an hour, uh, a guy came, came in and, and took, me, uh, took me out against the objections of the police. And you know, this, this, this guy had come to get me. He, he's, he's got his arm around me and he's leading, escorting me out of the, of the police station. And they're yelling at me, the, the police, and he's yelling back at them. And all I could hear was uh, something, 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 highly. So as soon as they heard Hailey's name, they all backed off. <laughs> so he told them that I was a friend of Hailey. So no, every tourist is going to have that same uh, uh, ace in the hole. But um, anyway, I got into the vehicle, and, and the driver was Haile's brother, spitting image of Haile. I thought it was Haile. I was shocked, you know. And uh, we drove to Asela, and I got there, went to pay my the credit card uh, for the hotel, and they said, no, no, Haile's taking care of it. 
So anyway, highly kept calling me and make sure you're okay, you know, you're, and so on. The next morning, the driver that had been sent by, by Hans to get me came to the hotel to pick me up. And we were driving away and, and uh, you know, from the town. And I'm still thinking about changing my airline ticket because I, I was, uh, uh, it really upset me uh, to say the least. That, that we'd gone through this, that this, this, this boy and his family, uh, you know, uh, was suffering. And um, we uh, were driving along and the, the driver said, uh, Paul, um, uh, do you mind if we stop at my house? I have my wife's shoes. I didn't have time to drop them for her when I came to get you last night. Uh, can, I, uh, can we do that? I said, yeah, no problem. I'm in no rush. So we went to his house. He said, uh, would, would you like to come in and see where I live? And, and one of the things I've learned when you travel, you don't say no to, a, uh, you know, for fear of insulting, uh, uh, for, you know, people are, are genuinely nice and, and uh, they, they want to share with you. And, and he knew what had happened. I said, I'd, I'd love to. Thank you. So we went inside and there were two little um, sort of uh, small homes uh, on the premises. His wife came out and she was nine months pregnant. I mean, she was about to have a baby any day, I think. And she had no shoes. And the shoes he was giving her were a pair of flip-flops. That's what he had in his car. And um, his mother was there, his sister, uh, some nieces and nephews, they all came out. And the first thing they were talking in Amharic, and then he translated for me. He said, "Are you hungry? Would you like something to eat?" I said, "I'm okay." Um, I said, "But you know, I, I had a big, big breakfast. Thank you." And then they talked again. Would you like coffee? Traditional Ethiopian coffee. And I said, uh, "I'd love that." So we went inside one of the houses, and it was a pleasant experience because you're a guest in their home. And they want you to, to enjoy yourself. And, they, and, and you, you would insult them if you don't uh, enjoy yourself. They, they roast the coffee beans in a traditional uh, coffee ceremony. They do it right there in front of you on a little uh, stove. Um, they, you know, and you, have the, you drink the coffee. And like, it looks like a, um, uh, a cappuccino cup, those tiny cups. And you have, uh, instead of sugar, you have sweet grass. Mm -hmm. And they serve uh, plain popcorn with it. That's that's part of the ceremony. And I'm sitting while they're while they're roasting the beans and cooking the coffee. I'm sitting there with my laptop open, with the photographs of the if the Ethiopian wolf that I followed, and I was and I have the kids on either side of me looking at these pictures, and they're just in awe. And it was so wonderful to share that with them because they've only seen pictures. They don't know a lot about, you know, wolves that are, you know, uh, I guess about 180, 200 kilometers away from them because they, they never see them live, you know. So I'm, I'm showing them pictures and they're just in, in awe. It was, it was just a wonderful experience to share that. We had the coffee. And then when we left, I said to the driver, I said, thank you so much for that. It's renewed my faith in, in mankind, you know, the, 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 the hospitality you've shown me. And uh, so this is a long story, but I'm going back to the point was I wanted to make sure his family was taken care of 
they had a baby boy. And, uh, you know, I, I, Hans had followed up with me and, and told me about the family and all that stuff. So, but, but you, you, when you go, when you find a guide that is uh, genuine, uh, that cares about the people who are working for him, and you have this uh, affinity to, towards them, it makes the experience 100% better for everybody. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know in, in the Simeon Mountains, I, 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 I just t- tell this, I, you know, when people say to me sometimes, what's your favorite picture from Ethiopia? And, it, and it's always, I, I, I tell them the story about these three ladies mm-hmm. that I saw in the Simeon Mountains. I'd been picked up from the airport in Gondar and I was being taken to this town, Debark, where you meet the guides and then you start, you, you, they drive you outside of town and then you begin your four day hiking up and down these mountains. And um, I'm with the, the guide, or the, with a driver, and uh, he speaks a bit of English. He's been hired by Hans. And we're driving, we're nowhere near Debark, but the scenery is, it's like the Grand Canyon. So I said, can we stop here? I wanna take a picture. So they, so they, they, uh, he stops the, the vehicle. He said, but there'll be plenty of uh, places like this. I said, but, but as a photographer, you think you're never going to see anything like this again, you know? So I stopped and, and, and there's these three ladies weaving uh, at the side of this, this mountain. And I thought, uh, you know, they were in colorful dress and so on. And I, and I went over to them and I gestured, you know, can I take your picture? And the, and the woman in the middle, she, she, I think the two younger ones were the daughters of this, this one lady. And she went like this, the universal sign for money, you know, wants money. So I said to the driver, how much shall I give her? And he, he said, give them 10 burr each. 10 burr is about 30 cents. <laughs> so I, I, so I, I opened up my wallet and I pulled out, uh, gave them each 10 burr and they sat there. And then the one in the middle, the one who had gone like this, she said, um, she said something in America and the three of them burst out laughing and the shot of them laughing is what it, it just, it, it, it summarizes Ethiopia to me. And I said to the driver, what did she say? And he started laughing. He said, she said, I think I found a husband, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but that's, you know, you your the experience with a local guide uh, and a local company uh, and he's only hiring people that he can trust and, and can give you a good experience. Those experiences are, are uh, you know, they're so memorable. Here I am telling the, the tale, and I've been on several trips since, yeah. and, and, and that still is a highlight in my, my travel career. We, I, I had a similar experience in Dominican where a family friend went there, and they said, connect with these people, and it turned out somehow it's somebody off the resort, or I think it was a guide as well. And we connected with this man and, and she, they had a daughter that was the same age as me, but they invited us back to their ranch essentially. And they have very, you know, many children and very small accommodations, but they pulled out a feast, a table of food. And, and we were brought in by motorcycles and they had horses and I went horseback riding and we were like playing in this river and it was just so beautiful in the jungle. Right. And, and then we had the daughter stay with us at the resort, <laughs> basically like my playmate, right? And, um, but, you know, there's something to be said to befriending the, the tour guides and just, you know, genuinely getting to know them and who they are and their families. And I think that's the best experience. And it was funny that you mentioned Tales by Light. It's one of my favorite shows. 
great, isn't it? Of capturing, it's a bit of venture, but it's the cultural, you know. Yeah. Um, story. yeah. Well, it, it, it's funny, you know. I, I was uh, uh, up uh, on one of my trips to Lebanon. I, I can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I was in uh, Beirut three times from 20, 2015, 2016, 2017 to do some publicity work for the Beirut Marathon. So on, all, on each of the trips, I would, I would always tag on a couple of days to, to do something there and then fly back to England to um, visit relatives and friends and stuff. But, but I went um, uh, one time, I wanted to, to, to go to the Cedars of God, which is uh, there, it's written about in the Bible. And it's it's um, uh, um, just uh, it's, the, the place you go is a little, little village, and it's where uh, the poet Khalil Gibran is from. So it's it's a very uh, popular spot for anybody who goes to Lebanon. So I'd hired a taxi driver through a friend of mine who worked for the marathon. She trusted this taxi driver. I think I paid seventy five dollars US for the day. And he drove me uh, up up into the mountains and so on, and and I wanted to get a picture. We came down this this dirt road and 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 we're looking down into this valley, the Kadisha Valley, and it's absolutely stunning. And uh, there's you know all these um, uh, temples and and uh, churches and so on, and villages all the way. And, and you're looking, you know, again, it's like a, a major canyon, the Kadisha Valley, and we came upon this what looked to be a uh, like a motel or a hotel at the end of this dirt road. And I wanted to get a picture from there. Anyway, uh, there's a man standing there and he's smoking a cigarette. And I said, uh, hello, you know, uh, uh, how are you? And, and he, he said, I'm good. How are you? And, and uh, I said, is this, is this your hotel? He said, yes. And I said, uh, uh, it's very beautiful up here. Do you get a lot of people here? He said, in the ski season, we have people staying here. Uh, it, nobody here right now. I said, do you mind if I use your washroom? He said, yes, by all means, go in there. So I come out and, and he said, where are you from? Which is a common question in Beirut. And uh, if you're from Canada, they love you. you know. And he, he, said, um, he said, I said, I'm from Canada. And he says, what part of Canada? I said, I live in Cambridge. He said, I lived in Ottawa for 20 years. <laughs> Lebanese. So this was his restaurant. And he said, I'd like you to come in and, and have a coffee. I said, I, I'd love to maybe on the way back, I said, because I'm going to, I want to go to the top of the valley and take some pictures uh, while there's still some good light. So he said, yes, when you come back. So we went off and, and, and did our thing. And on the way back, we, we had, we struggled, but we found this, this dirt road where his hotel was. And there was a young man standing outside, and I said, oh, uh, uh, do you work here? And he said, yes, my, it's my father's uh, hotel. I said, uh, I met him earlier. He said, yes, he's waiting for you. So the, the taxi driver and I went in, and there's the hotel owner and his wife and a couple of friends of theirs and, and some of the rest of their family. They've got a huge tuna that they've cooked. They've got salads. They've got all this food laid out ready for <laughs> For me, <laughs> I, I was, you know, certainly I, I thought we'd have a coffee, but he had a whole dinner there. And then they had this, this um, uh, drink, this, um, I, I mean, and every country has its own um, uh, strong drink. And, and, and he poured this, this it, it, it smelled like licorice. 
and like like uh, like ouzo, but it was their type of ouzo. So you know, he's got a big flask of it, and he's pouring it uh, around. My taxi driver is drinking it as well, which I didn't. I said, I'm glad I'm not driving, which was his hint to put it down. But I said, how much alcohol is in this? And the guy says, oh, I don't know. It's homemade. <laughs> so, but but those are the kind of experiences you get when when you uh, let your guard down and, and uh, you know, say yes to um, some hospitality. Mm-hmm. No, well... So if people want to follow your work, where can they, uh, uh, like, where's your website? Because you're not on social media. No, I, I, I got off that. Uh, I was on Instagram briefly. And then my, when my daughter's dog had more followers than me, I said, that's it. You know, <laughs> um, I, I have a website, paulgainsphoto.com, and it's Gaines without an E, <clears throat> paulgainsphoto.com. And I have, I blog regularly and and if people want to um uh be on my mailing list and be kept abreast of uh, my upcoming book and uh any presentations i might be doing then you know they can contact me through that that website that's wonderful we'll link to your upcoming uh recording your webinar coming up i'll get the link from you and maybe even (coughs) but uh yeah yeah so basically This sort of went exactly how I kind of expected it, because having had thousands of conversations with you over the years, um, you sort of just sort of ask Paul something and an hour and a half goes by. (laughs) It's an hour and a half? Yeah. Wow. It was perfect timing. And I think it was just amazing to give people a glimpse of, you know, what adventure travel with, you know, wildlife photography could look like and some tips along the way, you know. Well, and it it ties into one of the things that we always are... uh, like stressing, which is sort of find things you're passionate about, you know, and if you can make that yeah. your work, um, that's great because, you know, it's one of those things where, where time flies <laughs> and if you're not enjoying what you're doing. Like we, we all know people who, who have, uh, have quote unquote careers and uh, which more often than not uh, prevent them from doing things that they really are passionate about. You know, and, and it goes back to what I was telling my my uh, my kids. You know, um, we're not put on earth to work; we're put here to, uh, to live, and work is a means to enjoy life. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know, it doesn't mean you don't work hard. You know, but if you if you have a goal that you want to do something, then you know how can you how can you do it? Get a get a do the work to to get it. But um, you know, there's there's so many people, and when they talk about, you know, more than fifty percent of people are unhappy in their jobs, but they can't quit them because you know they have mortgages, they have, uh, you know, cars they got to pay for, they you know they have, um, they're living perhaps beyond their means, and uh, you know, it, it's it's something that uh, it's a rat race, and and I, and it's it's a it's not the road that I want to take anymore. And, and that's why 26 years ago, I, I said, you know, uh, I'm, I don't want to do this event marketing when I'm 60 years old. I want to, you know, and, and the travel, like it, it never feels like a job. You know, I, I can remember the first time I went to Athens, you know, I, I um, it was the 1997 world track and field championships. And I was freelancing then for the globe and mail. And I went for dinner one night with uh, Steve Buffery of the Toronto Sun 
and Randy Starkman, the late Randy Starkman um, of the Toronto Star, great guy. Uh, the three of us were having dinner together and the conversation turned around to, uh, you know, the two of them were saying, I haven't had a day off in, in 35 days and blah, blah, blah. You know, they're complaining about their work because their, their writing was a job and they had a lot of pressure and so on like that. And I'm, I said, guys, there's the Acropolis right there, you know, lit up in front of us. We're eating, you know, a fantastic meal here in Plaka in, in Athens. And I said, uh, there are people back home would give the right leg to, to come and, and do what we're doing, you know. But so it's easy to lose, lose perspective of, of uh, what life is all about, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I, I, I've been luckier than most because, you know, um, I've, I traveled a lot um, with, uh, you know, people paying my ticket. Um, my last trip to Ethiopia, for instance, the Ethiopian Tourist Board paid for my airline ticket because uh, I'd been there three times already and somebody had a word with them about uh, the fact I, was, I, I wasn't intending to go back. And then I got a call from the great Ethiopian run and the race director said, uh, are you coming over, Paul? We haven't heard from you. And I said, I don't think I'm going to make it this year. Oh, that's too bad. He says, we've got a ticket for you in a hotel uh, from the Ethiopian Tourist Board. And I said, oh, okay, then uh, that changes things. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I ended up going over there and, and getting a bunch of assignments to go with it. But So I've been very lucky in that regard. But um, And it, it, it's only the last, uh, uh, I guess, eight or nine years where I've, I've thought, you know what, um, I've had enough of watching people run around a track. You know, I, I've... I've uh, I, I like the outdoors so much. I want to make a living from that. You know, um, I mean, I, you mentioned the people I've interviewed in the past, you know, and, you know, uh, m- people in the music business, I do a lot of music writing and, and, you know, I've interviewed Eric Clapton. I'm one of the f- few people in Canada that can say that, that Eric Clapton called them three times, you know, because, um, but, you know, one of, my, one of my heroes and, you know, and, and uh, talking with Deepak Chopra and Justin Trudeau and, and uh, Evander Holyfield, Lennox Lewis, you know, the, you know, Jacques Villeneuve and Wayne Gretzky and many others, uh, Usain Bolt. It's 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 it, it's that's exciting, but you know, when you're out there one on one with a snowy owl that's come to know you because you've been out there every day for five weeks, and now it's not afraid of you, and you can approach close enough that you can stand there talking to it, and it's just preening for three hours on a post while you're standing there looking at it. It's it, you're in their world. It's, it's precious. And, and that owl I'm talking about uh, literally caught a, an American kestrel while I was in the field with her. She came down, scared another owl away that I'd been photographing. She came down, caught a kestrel, which is the smallest member of the, one of the smallest members of the Hawk family and um, uh, ate it in front of me like 10 or 15 meters away. And for an hour and a half, I'm there lying in the snow taking pictures of her. And she, you know, she's eating this thing. And, you know, that's, that's being comfortable around an animal and, mm-hmm. and, and her, her being comfortable with me. It's, uh, those are moments, uh, you know, uh, you know it, I, I, if I did never cover another track and field meet, I'm, I'm happy, you know. <laughs> 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 been to five Olympic Games and 11 World Championships and, 
you know, it, it's um, I, I the, the the thrills are uh, still out there for me, and and um, you know, I've yet to photograph a moose, and that's uh, that's my big challenge now. So, <laughs> awesome. I'll keep heading up north. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your stories. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a been a pleasure. You know, and uh, stay outdoors and stay well. And for all of our listeners, remember: work hard, play dirty, and uh, yeah. you know, try not to get sick. That's <laughs> all we can say this time. Awesome. Until next time, I'm Winston. I'm Catherine. See you later. Bye.